You are listening to the Virtual World Society podcast. For this episode, we invited Leslie Shannon, head of trend and innovation scouting at Nokia. Make sure to check out Leslie's new book, Interconnected Realities. To get involved with our organization, head over to virtualworldsociety.org. What is going on, everybody? It is Maxwell with the Virtual World Society podcast here with another amazing, fascinating guest, Leslie Shannon. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Max. It's it's a real joy to be here. You have such a fascinating career, such a fascinating job, and I am very passionately curious about how everybody starts in this industry because tech is a very unique industry and it's filled with people who all have different backgrounds and different stories. Uh, you are the head of trend and innovation scouting at Nokia. And I'm curious, how did you get into technology in the first place? So before Nokia, how did you realize that this was an industry you wanted to be a part of? Um, you asked that question, and I know that you don't know the answer, um, and I know that you're not prepared for where this is going to take us, but but good on you for asking. So, so well, going all the way back to high school, I was, I was passionately interested um, in the life sciences. And then I got to college, and I really, I, I got into neuroanatomy, and I did a lot of um, cutting up rat brains and attaching electrodes to rat brains and stuff. I'm not really sure they let undergraduates do that kind of stuff anymore. But anyway, I, I really loved it. But then um, in my junior year, I just happened to take an art history class. And, and just in a flash, I saw that the, the kind of the, the understanding of the human condition that I was trying to get at by chopping up rat brains um, was actually even more accessible by looking at the products of, of what humans produce. You know, they're just great reflections of the place, place and time um, and the history. And they touch on the literature and the religion and everything. So I ended up um, double majoring in neuroanatomy and the history of art. And then I went to graduate school in the history of art. And um, and then I, you know, I knew I didn't want a museum career. And then after I was out of graduate school, I'm like, well, what do I do now? And, and this is where it takes the turn that you don't expect. Um, and then I got on Jeopardy. <laughs> And I was, um, at the age of 27, I was an undefeated five-time winner. This was back when they retired you after five games. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you didn't know that. You but were, yeah, you that's, were that's right. my background. I'm glad I discovered that <laughs> in the conversation. You got on Everybody, Jeopardy. Everybody, the look of shock on his face is significant. Yes. <laughs> You got on Jeopardy. That's amazing. D did they call you? Did you call them? How does how does somebody uh, get on Jeopardy? Had, uh, back then, they had open auditions in Atlantic City. This is pre-internet, and so I drove to Atlantic City. Uh, I was I'm from the East Coast, and um, you know, and you pass a you pass an initial test, and then you pass a bigger test, and then they do a personality test, and then they do a buzzer test because if you're gonna if you have bad reflexes, you're not gonna do well on the show. So if you pass all of those things, well, and I was a I was a young woman, which was very unusual at the time. And in fact, for, I was for a long time the youngest female undefeated um, five-time winner. And I went back to the Tournament of Champions, and then they had me back. I was in there. Was a, they had a Battle of the Decades um, back in 2014. I was on that. Um, so I've been on Jeopardy a total of 10 times. 
Uh, and yeah, and so, you know, so I'm part of, you know, I know Ken Jennings and, you know, I mean, it's, there's this whole Jeopardy community of the, uh, 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 the people. And then, so, so my main hobby right now, it's still competitive trivia. There's a whole competitive trivia world out there. And so, so, but anyway, the reason that that got me into tech was, you know, I was fresh out of graduate school. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And Alex Trebek kindly in my fifth game during the interview part mentioned that I was unemployed, you know, and well, let's you know, you don't have a job. What are you planning? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I got job offers. <laughs> I literally got job offers. And, and then I got 15 different job offers. And uh, the best one was from a company called EDS. That was Ross Perot's former company. I ended up moving to Dallas, joining EDS and becoming um, a, a mobile telephone billing database expert. And, and that is actually what got me into tech. And I discovered, and the reason I started back in high school with all of this is that I am, you know, there's a few people who, you know, swim well in the waters of both the arts and the sciences. And I'm one of those people. And so, so yes, I could be uh, an SQL jockey, uh, but at the same time, I can also explain to other people what it is that's going on. And so, you know, and so with EDS, I was, uh, yeah, anyway, long story short, I ended up working for Nokia. Uh, I joined Nokia in the year 2000. So, you know, 23 years ago. And, um, and the thing that I have always done within Nokia, which is a wonderful organization that gives its employees great freedom, if you can demonstrate the utility of some kind of approach or a new idea that you have. And, and there's multiple times in my career where I've seen something that wasn't being done. And I said, that needs to be done. And I just started doing it on top of my, my regular job. And that was actually how this trend scouting thing happened. In 2015, I moved to Silicon Valley. Um, my husband actually got it. I was in Finland at Nokia headquarters. My husband got a job in California. I came out to, excuse me. And then we had to figure out, all right, what, what am I going to do for Nokia out here? And I was doing, I was doing stuff, but I looked around and I'm like, oh my God, there is all this stuff here in Silicon Valley that is assuming that telecommunications support is going to be there and things, things like AR and VR and, and drone and robotic remote control and, you know, and visual analytics. And, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I know telecommunications pretty well by now. The telecommunications uh, in community has no idea that this stuff is coming. And they're not building networks specifically to suit these particular um, these particular uh, technologies. So I took it upon myself to start just finding out what was out there and then reporting to the phone companies of the world who are our customers. Hey, here's the technologies that I see that are coming that we're going to need to build the network to support. And I started doing that on top of my regular job. And, and it just, over time, people were far more interested in hearing the Silicon Valley report than they were in hearing what my official job was. So, and that's where Nokia, again, you know, fabulous employer said, you know what, we see where the value is. This will be your full-time job. And so it has been for the last, you know, seven years or so. So, sorry, very long. <laughs> and very fascinating. But that's the next story. And, and very fascinating. Was it always... Uh, was it always common for Jeopardy contestants such as yourself to to go on to become really successful like you did? Did that happen a lot? Uh, um, 
Okay, I don't want this to come out wrong. Um, <laughs> um, a lot of times, and this isn't comment so much. Well, okay, I need to be careful I say this. There's a lot of people who are super, super, super good in the competitive trivia world, both within Jeopardy and without, um, who maybe don't have so much of the social bone. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you know, a foot in each camp. The fact that I, you know, I know a lot of trivia, and I can also like play well with others. Talk the talk. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and and so and and one of the things that I see among you know the wonderful wonderful people in the the competitive trivia community is that quite often people will have um, some kind of job that is you know, not super high status, but it lets them pursue their passion and it lets them pursue their passion of knowledge. And, and I would actually say that is a more common um, profile than, uh, than, than, you know, the high flying executive who is also a, you know, a really high powered trivia person. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like, you know, especially the trivia crowd is very educated. I, I have actually hosted trivia for many years um, at different bars and everything. <laughs> and, and, you know, what's funny is I wasn't always the, the best at, um, at, at playing the trivia. It was more so I was good at hosting it. I was good at, at kind of the social, the social aspect of it, you know, kind of being that Alex Trebek, um, right. Kind, it's a skill. It's a definite, you know? definite skill. Right. But I'm amazed that to, to find out that, that you have both of these skills, the build, the ability to be this social, this confidence, this, you know, I can tell you what's what I I'm knowledgeable about this as well. That's a really powerful combination. And, you know, especially for Nokia. Right. Well, and I think I think you said a magic word there, <clears throat> which is confidence. And the thing that happened to me, um, because I was I was I was a young woman when I won on Jeopardy. And what that gave me was confidence. And it wasn't that I didn't believe in myself. I wouldn't have, you know, been on Jeopardy, would have gotten to Jeopardy if I didn't believe in myself because, you know, I put myself forward. But it's fascinating. If you go back and you look at those episodes when I was 27, um, my voice is completely different. Um, I'm much more like this. Um, I'll take uh, the Civil War for 500, Alex. Uh, and, and now it's like, you know, no, I'm not holding my voice back. This is who I am. And you get to hear me and my thoughts because I know they have validity. And I got that that blessing through the magic of the game show empire. And, and I wish, I wish more young women could have that magic wand waved over them. When I hear young women who are holding back and who are not speaking with their full voice, it really kills me. It's like, no, go out there and be yourself. Use your full voice because that's how people hear you. That's how people hear you. Yeah. People are not going to have confidence in what you are saying unless you have confidence in what you are saying. Yeah, I'm sure women, especially women in STEM, would be inspired by your story because, you know, there are so many intelligent, brilliant women out there and confidence really is key. It seems like it, it gets you it so many places. And I can imagine the confidence is also necessary in your career at Nokia because I'm assuming that, that you are speaking to these executives or these business people or, you know, people that 
that have made him maybe have the confidence but don't have the knowledge you know they they are not as knowledgeable about these particular topics which is why they need they need you they need you to lead the way and to tell them about these things that are are innovative and new and when you first started in this role what were some of the technologies that you were like okay this is this is this is what i got to push forward this is this is going to be big when uh, when I first started uh, the uh, mobile data, people were only using their phones for voice. And what the heck is mobile data for? What are we going to do by looking at our phones instead of holding them up to our ear? It was just this giant question mark. And and we're really in a very similar situation now with um, with virtual worlds and with VR and AR. Um, we've got the technology, but we're not quite sure what it's for yet. And um, and. And, and, you know, and so how we kind of muddled through with mobile data, because I, I actually ran for Nokia, um, you know, back in 2000 and uh, between 2000 and 2004, I ran a developer lab um, and and we, we nobody had any idea. And, and so it was basically build it, throw it out there, see how people react. And it was only over time that we realized that, oh, you know what, mobile phones are really good for letting you access the internet when you are away from your computer. That was like not a given. It was not obvious. And then and then, then Apple comes in with the App Store and it's like, oh, okay, there's all these functionalities you can do. Okay, great. Um, so it's, it's not clear, you know. Technology only takes off when it solves a problem. Technology in itself doesn't you know unless it's a, it's the application of technology that really matters and so so that's where i am right now you know with the whole ar and vr world um and it's like okay we have these wonderful technologies what are the problems that we can apply these technologies to that will be the best solution that will be far better than anything that we can do with them now one thing that drives me crazy is um, bad metaverse spaces. Uh, and so I'm not going to name any names, but in the telco world, uh, there are many examples that I've seen where uh, operators will build something in some kind of a metaverse. Usually it's a PC-based kind of thing. You have to download a client, which takes a while, and then you find yourself in there, and then you have to use your arrow keys or whatever on your keyboard to maneuver your avatar around. And then when you finally get to the operator space, I, my operator, I mean phone company, I should be clear. Um, uh, you, you, know, you go in there, and then what do you find? You find no more information or functionality than you would have found on the operator's website. And yet the operator has just made you waste 10 minutes of your life in navigating your avatar through this stuff and around furniture. You don't need furniture in the metaverse, for God's sake. And, you know, <laughs> just like really, ah, don't make me crazy. No, build a metaverse that solves a problem I can't get done on the website. That's the point. If you build these useless ones, you're just going to waste people's time and make them think the metaverse has no point. And that's bad. So don't do that. <laughs> the metaverse is a big buzzword, right? We keep hearing it over and over and over again. Facebook brought it kind of to the more so to the public eye. Um, I believe probably a couple of years ago now or, or a year or two ago now with that commercial, right? That commercial that came out that said the metaverse. Now we're meta. Now now we're all this stuff. And a lot of people in the VR community were already knowledgeable about the metaverse. They already knew about the evolution of the Internet and they were already knowledgeable about it. For the general public, how is the metaverse uh, useful to them? How, how can it be useful to them? The The... 
the important thing to understand about metaverse is that it's not just what happens in a VR headset. Um, in fact, if you look at the number of people who are using some kind of fusion of the digital and the physical, which is really fundamentally what the metaverse is, um, the bulk of people having those experiences right now are happening in gaming platforms and on smartphones, looking at things like Instagram filters and Snapchat lenses and stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so, so and, and it's important to be as inclusive as possible, I believe, uh, with the metaverse. And so while we have this continuum, you know, pure digital over here and pure physical over at the other side, and the metaverse is really kind of everything except the only physical world, anytime you start combining the digital and the physical all the way up to the 100% um, digital, that, that for me is the metaverse. And, and while I very firmly, I'm, I'm passionate about virtual reality and I, I do all of my fitness in virtual reality and I have done for four years and it's just, I just, I just love it. I just love it. I have never exercised regularly before in my life but gamifying it, oh yeah, I am so there. And yeah, and so 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 that's great. But I have two teenage children. They don't use the VR headset. My husband doesn't use the VR headset. It's not for everybody. And to me, virtual reality is very much like gaming consoles for the people to whom it speaks. Um, it's it's a wonderful device, and they're going to be passionate about it, and they're going to let you know take it with them when they travel, or try to. But for other people, eh, not so much. So it's it's going to stay niche. Not every household is going to have one and not everybody in the house is going to use it again, a lot like a gaming console. And so for me, where the, where the concept of the metaverse will be the most important and the thing that will actually change the nature of the relationship between humans and the computers in our lives going forward is actually much more on the augmented reality side. The problem that we have right now with our computing is that it's locked into little screens. And if I, and big screens too. Um, and if I or anyone want, if we want to access the power of computing from you know looking up something on a website all the way to accessing something like ChatGPT, we have to take our gaze away from the world that we're in. And we have to have our gaze dead end at a little two-dimensional screen. And that takes us away from the world that we're in. It takes us away from the people who are around us. And, um, and it puts us in this kind of, you know, weird place also and this sounds kind of funny but we have to you have to be in most cases you're you're holding you're taking one hand by holding the phone so kind of the problem that augmented reality in a headset solves is getting that computing information that's currently locked behind a screen putting that into our worlds in digital representations in the context of us as our gaze is back interacting with the actual world and the people in it directly again. I said that kind of clumsily. I hope that comes across. I hope that's understandable. Um, with both hands free. And so that puts us back in the physical world, yet with the ability to conjure up information or the presence of other people, you know, looking down uh, the line um, as we go about our day-to-day -day life. So enhancing our life rather than interrupting it. Because I think right now a lot of computing actually interrupts our daily life. And that's the problem we need to solve.
Yeah, I love what you said, enhancing enhancing our daily lives, right? Adding to the wonder of it. And AR really excites me. I, I work full-time in, in virtual reality, but I, I have to say, AR excites me so much because we see it a lot in the movies. You know, we see it in movies and TV shows in the form of holograms, and you see it in kind of in Star Wars and these little digital representations. But I think to myself, there's so many use cases for for AR. If I If I put on a pair of glasses and I can see a path that I have to walk in New York City, right? And it shows me go down this block and this block and this block. And I'm not looking down at my phone and getting hit by a car and, you know, all these things that it solves. So on the small scale, it, it solves a, a lot of issues and can definitely enhance our everyday lives. Are the things, certain use cases that are kind of specific for medical or military or different businesses that really excite you where you're like, okay, this is going to solve a huge problem? Um, okay, well, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, comp okay, enterprise and industrial um, virtual and augmented reality are in great shape, because for both of those, the hardware already exists. If you're at work, you will put something that's heavy or clunky on your head to do the task that's needed, and then you'll take it off again, and, you know, that's great. So, so we're, we've already seen a lot of stuff. Where I'm interested is looking down the road at consumer, um, and we're probably, you know, and, and we're waiting on the hardware, and if we, you know, Alvin Graylin of HTC, he's like, well, we're not going to have that kind of glasses before 2027, really. You know, and so what we're kind of waiting for is what I call the hero device, the thing, you know, don't know which company it's going to come from, don't know when it's going to come, but there's going to be a device that captures the imagination. And that's the one that everybody starts going out and buying. And so when that comes, you know, I really think second half of the decade for that. But what I like to do is I like to imagine the kinds of problems that will be solved on the consumer side of things. So for mass adoption by that consumer hero device. And um, there's one of my favorite examples um, comes from this guy. I saw this on um, uh, on, on Twitter, actually, it was, or Reddit, um, a long, you know, several years ago now. Um, it was a guy named Voxel Guy. I don't even know his real name. Sorry, Voxel Guy. Um, and he had he was uh, he was a Unity programmer, and he was vacuuming his living room one day, and he's like, you know, oh, this is so boring. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so he used his um, his VR headset. He used his Oculus, and he, he built a um, a copy, a Unity copy of his living room, and then he anchored it to his actual living room. And then he had his vacuum cleaner, his physical vacuum cleaner in his hand, and he attached his VR controller to that. And then he put on his VR headset. And then what he saw was a representation that matched the actual physical world of his living room in his, uh, 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 in his glasses or in his goggles. Um, and then he dropped virtual euros all over the floor. And then as he vacuumed and he had a little virtual vacuum cleaner, he was hoovering up the euros from the floor in the virtual world as he was actually cleaning his living room. Right. And so this to me was like this brain exploding moment. It's like, oh my God, the gamification of everyday chores, the gamification of the kinds of things, repetitive tasks we have to do over and over and over and over again, or even better, incentivizing uh, our children to do everyday tasks like, you know, walk the dog and, you know, follow the trail of gold coins around the neighborhood. And if you get all the gold coins, you know, that means that you're out with the dog for more than two minutes, you know, yay. Uh, <laughs> so all these things, I, I think... Um, these are the kinds of things that excite me. Again, solving a problem, getting you excited about doing the laundry because it's been gamified, sign me up. Yeah.
Yeah. Gamification is fascinating and amazing. And as as I've been a professor for a number of years now, and when I first started teaching, I just taught from the syllabus and, you know, I I would just tell the students, I was like, okay, we're going to do this lesson and that lesson. And I kind of started to think of myself. I was like, wow, I'm bored teaching this. (laughs) They must be they must be crazy bored. Like there's got to be different ways that I can do this and I can I can make this work. And when I started incorporating augmented reality and virtual reality, augmented reality using our phones uh, to do just the line or just a line, which is a, a free app where you can like, you know, draw things in on your camera and and actually go up to it in virtual reality doing you know drawing different things and incorporating in lessons it really it was tremendously beneficial i mean virtual reality and augmented reality the results are insane i mean what enterprise has been able to do gamification it, it 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 feels so disappointing that a lot of the general public, especially people I talk to in my everyday life who aren't involved in my industry, have no idea. They don't know. They're like, oh, VR, that's like a game, right? You 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 put on a headset and it's like a game. How do we get the how do we get the word out there more uh, about oh, this? Man, Is it up it, to the companies? Well, it, it's yeah, uh, yes and no. Um, uh, one really important thing to keep in mind is where we are on the timeline. If we think about the development of the internet, the first um, commercially successful, you know, personal computers that people had at home uh, or could have at home was were 1977. You know, an early Commodore, an early Mac, or sorry, an early Apple. Um, you know, and even then, not that many people had them. I can tell you, I was there then. You know, not that many people had them. Um, and it was only slowly that the all of the elements underpinning the internet as we know it today became available. You know, TCP/IP wasn't developed until 1983. Um, you know, the World Wide Web wasn't developed or you know made available until you know a little bit later as well. And um, the metaverse, I mean, the first you know really viable hardware for consumer usage was really the Oculus Rift. That was 2016. That's only seven years ago. And it was 30 years from the first hardware for the internet to the iPhone um, in 2007, where you re- that really took the mobile internet global. And that was, you know, and so we are so early in the development of the metaverse that in a way, you know, it, we're not quite ready for prime time. I got to say, we don't even have the equivalent of TCP IP. And this is why the work by groups like the Metaverse Standards Forum is are really important right now. And so uh, Mark Zuckerberg, by changing the name of his company to Meta, um, doing that so early, he did us a service, but he also did us a disservice because he shone the spotlight on this area, but I think he shone it a little too soon. Um, and so I really think of where we are right now in the metaverse is kind of like, you know, with the Apple's Newton uh, product in the 90s. Uh, you know, it's this thing that's kind of like a smartphone, but it doesn't quite have everything all together. And the true consumer product is still, yeah, it's still a little bit away. So I'm not saying we have to wait 30 years for the metaverse. I think the timeline will be will be faster, but we need to be realistic about the things that are missing and the infrastructure bits, the, the unsexy, uninteresting infrastructure bits that need to be in place before the true promise of the metaverse will genuinely be felt. Yeah. And it, it seems like this timeline, it's always shifting and changing and we think it's going to be it's always two years away. yeah two years away or five <laughs> years away or 10 years away or two weeks away or or, or something it's it, it seems to always be changing and what i notice with all these new technologies that come out is people aren't always uh into it even technologies that are popular today not everybody was into computers not everybody was into the internet so there is right. so much hope 
especially for the potential of virtual reality and augmented reality. And do you think AI is going to help us speed up timelines or our timelines going to be kind of the same? Um, well, you know, again, you know, having been with Nokia, I've, 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 you know, watching the development of the mobile phone for me, that's that's been very instructive in in the development of um, what, what I expect in the development of um, AR and VR. And um, one of the things that happened was that um, the early phones did not have very much functionality, and then over time, as more and more people started carrying them, I mean, the first phones only made a phone call, right? You know then more functionality got added. And then as more functionality got added, more people saw that they were useful. So this virtuous cycle was created. And that's actually really where I see um, AR and VR going and becoming ultimately more mainstream. They need to be, they need to solve problems for people, but we also need to have, um, uh, it's not just one technology. So, you know, VR by itself is one thing. AR by itself is another thing. But when you look at something, you know, the, the true promise of the internet really started to be realized with things like Uber. And Uber actually brought together multiple technologies into a package that solved a very specific problem. There was um, a, a location, location information um, so that you know where everybody is. There's phones with apps, there's the mobile internet in general, there's the mobile network being in place. There's all, and then there's, you know, the backend structures being necessary with billing and everything and secure payments. All of these things had to be in place before something like Uber could be created. And so, and so for me, the kind of the next wave of the transformational technologies we'll have access to, um, it's going to be a similar picture. It's going to be this melange um, of AR, VR, you know, XR, mixed reality, generative AI, visual recognition, drones, robotics, what the hell, everything. The building blocks are being placed on the table for the creative people out there to come along and say, here's a problem that needs solving. Let me look at what is available that I can now put together and build this thing that nobody's ever seen before. Oh, and, and this is the thing that's actually going to solve this problem. Um, starting with the technologies and working forwards, you don't really get there. Starting with a problem and then looking at the technologies available and bolting together something that genuinely serves a problem or saves, solves a problem, um, that's when we actually have the transformational moments. And that's what I'm expecting to come in this, trans in this, in this new wave of, uh, of really, you know, the, the next fulfillment of what the internet is. Yeah. I appreciate your brilliant insight so much because it makes so much sense to me that we have to start with a problem. And I think that people should listen particularly to this episode and they should listen to you if they want to understand more about how we're going to move this technology forward. Seriously, because they need to they need to understand this, that with this problem and starting with this problem is truly how we can move things forward. Well, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, one of the insights that for me was a was a like just super true. Um, I got from um, Jeff Boone, who is the CEO of Headwall, which is a VR company located in Washington, D.C. And he said to me that we really get the breakthrough moments when a technology has advanced enough that the experts in various fields start interacting with that technology because the experts are the ones who know the problems really well and that are the most likely to spot 
a solution when a new technology comes along that will give a good solution. The problem is that the experts also tend to be a little older, maybe a little more hidebound, maybe a little more less likely to get out of their comfort zone. And so it's only when a technology advances to the extent that it starts becoming used enough that the expert starts using it, that's actually where the rubber meets the road and the true um, the true new developments begin. So that's, uh, so I'm, so I'm like, oh my God, that is so true. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get like every expert using VR and AR because <laughs> that's where we're going to see the real, the real advancement of this particular technology. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. And I talking to experts such as yourself seriously gives me so much hope for the future of this technology. So I want to say, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your knowledge and we need more people in the industry such as yourself. So thank you so much for providing that and for talking to me and chatting with me on this uh, on this podcast. Well, thanks so much. And 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 actually, if I if I may, I have actually just written a book about the metaverse. Yes, um, it. yes, it's it's called Interconnected Realities. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but independent bookstores like Powell's. That's 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 where I would go. Um, and and it's about the metaverse and particularly the augmented reality vision of the metaverse and lots and lots of use cases from my my work as a trend scout lots of excellent companies and and my vision based on my mobile phone experience on where i actually see this developing and what what technological advancements to look for so that you know that something different is happening and this this technology is genuinely moving forward leslie i make you this promise right now i am going to buy your book I am going to buy your oh, book because you. I'm seriously looking for more <laughs> literature to read about the metaverse. And just based on this very fascinating conversation, I, I think that that book would be tremendously helpful for me, you know, as 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 somebody well, in this industry. Thank you. That's that's very kind to say. And I, I really have to say I would agree. Yeah, <laughs> as I hope you would. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody go out and buy Leslie's book. This is the Virtual World Society podcast. Thank you so much, Leslie, for uh, for coming on the show and for just providing your insight. Thank you. It is my absolute honor. Go Virtual World Society. Go Virtual World Society. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next time.